Well, can we get into the word a little bit this morning? Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me. <clears throat> Acts chapter 2. If you haven't been with us for any of this series, I assure you I'm not dying up here, though it might sound like it from time to time. <clears throat> I do have water. I do have cough drops. I've been offered every home remedy under the sun. You can, you're still welcome to tell me about the one that worked for you after service. I, I'll smile and listen again. But uh, I apologize for this persistent cough I've been dealing with. But I believe God has a word on my heart for you today. And I just want you to lean in with your faith to receive from the Lord. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be. For the third weekend in a row, we're in a series we're calling Every Day. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at some of the rhythms in the first century church. We've been looking at the rhythms in their life. You know, a new year is a time where people start thinking about what they're going to focus on, goals they're going to achieve, new direction, new pathways. It's a new year. It's a new decade. And so a lot of that's happening, and, and those are all good things. But th there's a quote that I mentioned in the first week of this series. I want to mention it again as a word of caution. D.L. Moody said, our greatest fear shouldn't be of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't matter. And so my heart in this series at the beginning of 2020 is that we would slow down enough before we just grab the next idea or the latest trend or, or something that sounds good or something somebody else said, this is my ambition, this is my resolution, that we would slow down enough to lean in with our heart and say, what is the Lord leading me to do? And can I say when it comes to our mission, in over 2,000 years for the church, it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. And so we're looking at this New Testament church right in its birthplace, Acts chapter 2, when Jesus launched the church. And we're saying, God, what are the things that they were committed to? What were the rhythms of their life that I can center my life around? Because God forbid you would spend your time and your energy and your finances and your health to climb a ladder of success only to get to the top and realize it was leaned against the wrong building. And so as we look at this text one more time this month, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to align your life with what God is saying and doing in the church. Acts chapter 2, we're going to begin for the third week in a row with verse 42. <clears throat> It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. In the first week of this series, we talked about how they had devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That just meant they were devoted to the word of God. Can I just challenge you again in this year to be committed to the word of God? To take time on a continual, consistent basis to say, I'm going to hear from God. Nothing would strengthen this church more than if you and I would all decide that we're going to be self-feeding Christians. Self-feeding Christians that don't come in on Sunday spiritually anemic and wasted away and depleted and saying, oh God, I need a word. But that we would come in full 
and fueled and saying, God's been just depositing things in my life so that I can be the church out there. This, this is just the, this is the halftime huddle right here. I mean, this is just where we come together, we get direction and we get fired up and we get sent back out again. But th- this, is, this is not the meat and potatoes of my faith. I know how to pick up a fork. I know how to get in God's word. I know how to let him feed my life. This series, uh, along with the challenge to read God's word, we've made these journals available. If you weren't here last week, the good news is we still have some left. They're a limited edition thing. Once they're gone, they're gone. We're not ordering more. The good news is we still have more. And it says on the cover, they devoted themselves Acts 2.42, and it's got our church name on it. The reason I'm encouraging you to pick up one of those or uh, to have a journal with you when you get into God's word is because we don't want to just read the word. We want God to speak to us through his word. And if God speaks a word to you, the most faithful, good steward uh, you can be is to receive that word. And say, God, I I cherish the word you're speaking to me. Open up a journal and write down what the Lord is saying to you. And I would just prophesy to you that if you do that, you're not going to get to the end of 2020 and be one of those Christians that say, I don't understand the Bible. Now, I've been a Christian for a long time, and there's parts that I still don't understand. But I don't say I don't understand the Bible because every time I open this book and I open up my journal and I open up my heart, God says something that I do understand. And when he says something I do understand, I write it down. And you're going to get to the end of this year, and you're going to have a logbook of the faithfulness of God. You're never going to be one of those people that says, you know, I I don't know how to hear from God. Because you can see God speaking to your life. So I want to challenge you to be devoted to the word this year. Last week we talked about how they were devoted to prayer. That the people of God, when Jesus established the church, were a people of prayer. And and right here in front of us, we have so many prayers that have been offered to the Lord since the first Sunday of 2020. And can I tell you, when I look at that wall, I don't look at that and say, wow, that's a lot of needs. When I look at that, I say, wow, that's a lot of faith. I mean, come on, that's a lot of belief. That's a a lot of hope. That's a lot of agreement right there. And the Bible communicates that there's power in agreement. When we come together and trust God to meet the needs of his people, mountains can be moved. Another thing we've done every week is we've come to the table of the Lord in some form or fashion. We've received communion every Sunday. Again, Jesus said that there, there is something powerful that can happen when we come together centered on Christ. And we're going to talk more about that in this message. But each week we've taken time to receive communion. Today, I want to challenge you to be devoted to fellowship. I want you to see this rhythm that was in the first century church. They were devoted, Acts 2.42 says, to fellowship. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear that. You know, some people would think, man, that's, that's a lot of game nights. <laughs> like, they really liked potluck dinners. Like, they were devoted to fellowship. They, just, they must have really just liked each other. Can I tell you, that's not, what do, that's not what it means. Fellowship doesn't mean just getting together and having a meal or having a game night or hanging out with friends. There's a lot more depth to it. 
And we're going to unpack that this morning. But before we do, before we jump into fellowship, let me just acknowledge something today. As I was praying about this service, the Holy Spirit just reminded me of this. I recognize that I'm speaking to a, a lot of different people in this room. I recognize today that I'm speaking to the, the longtime church member. I'm speaking to the person that when you come here, you feel right at home. I mean, if somebody needs a broom, you know where that's at. You know, you know where the junk closet is. You know where we keep all the, all the Easter stuff. You know, this is home for you. You've been here a long time. I realize I'm, I'm talking about fellowship to you. But I also realize I'm talking this morning to the newcomer. To someone that, this morning, maybe it feels more like a conference. Like you're here to get something and receive something, but you feel like you're in a room full of strangers. I recognize today that there's all different people that are going to hear this message. We're going to hear the same word, but we're going to hear it differently. You understand what I'm saying? We're going to hear it differently today. So let me just say, and and for all those scenarios in between those two uh, ends of the spectrum, I want you to know today, if you're the person and you say, you know what, my, my social life is full. I mean, fellowship, got it. I got too many dinner parties. I got too many friends inviting me. I got too much going on. Can I just encourage you today, if that's you, don't be dismissive of this word because fellowship is not just about meeting your needs. It's about answering the call and fulfilling the purpose that God has for you to be the church. It's not just about meeting your needs. And let me just say to the introvert in the room, the people that when we say shake somebody's hand, you duck out for a cup of coffee because you do not want to shake people's hand. You do not want that awkward exchange. You don't want anyone in your personal bubble. Please don't make us hold hands with the person next to us and pray. For you today, I know you're out there and building relationships is hard. It is work for you. But can I just say to you as well, fellowship is not about preference. It's about answering the call and fulfilling the purpose that God has for you to be the church. God has called us to be devoted to fellowship. The New Testament was originally written in Greek, and the Greek word that is translated fellowship is koinonia. Koinonia. If you're a note taker, you can spell it however you want to. I won't check it. (laughs) But koinonia means this. It means having a share in something or sharing with someone in something. Or you could say it this way. It means participation in something or participation with someone. So when you hear the word fellowship, don't think potluck. Don't think get together. Think partnership. Think sharing together. Let me give you several verses, and and let me just say here towards the beginning of this message, I got a lot of scripture today, so we're going to put them on the screen. Don't hurt yourself trying to keep up. You know, I don't want you to sprain a thumb or, you know, get a paper cut or anything. Just write them down. Check later. Make sure I wasn't lying. It's really in there. We're going to put them on the screen, but I want to give you several verses that, that communicate this thought of koinonia, fellowship, sharing, partnership. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, talking about communion, which we just celebrated. It says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? That's the word, koinonia. And is not the bread that we break a participation 
in the body of Christ. What is he saying? He's saying when we come to the table of the Lord, we share in the benefits that Christ purchased for us through his blood and through his body. We share in that together. We share in what his death achieved. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, Paul was talking about a church in Macedonia. And he was talking about their generosity. And here's what he said about them. He said, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing or of koinonia in this service to the Lord's people. When the church in Macedonia heard about the poverty in Jerusalem, they said, we want to give to that. We want to be a part of that. We want to be in fellowship with the church in Jerusalem. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul said this about himself. He said, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and koinonia in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. He was saying, I want to have a share in what the suffering of Jesus accomplished. I want to participate with him in suffering for the sake of the gospel. That was the heart of Paul the apostle in that moment. He was saying, I want to be a part of it. So when we talk about koinonia today, when we talk about being devoted to fellowship with other believers, we're talking about that shared participation together. Being devoted to fellowship is more than having Christian friends, by the way. A lot of people think they they have fellowship because they have Christian friends. Can I just tell you, having Christian friends is not the same as having Christian friendships. I mean, you can be a person that says, I I identify as a follower of Jesus Christ, and, and your friend's a follower of Jesus Christ, but Jesus never comes up in your conversation. You never encourage each other in your faith. You never build one another up. You never edify each other. How many of you know there's a difference between having Christian friends and in having Christian friendships? Fellowship is a shared experience we have together in Christ. In fact, if you're going to have koinonia, it begins with a partnership with Jesus. The partnership begins with Jesus, and then out of that flows the partnership with others. That's exactly what John, the beloved, was talking about in 1 John 1.3. He said this. He said, that which we have seen and heard, talking about the gospel, we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Say the fellowship that we have is in Jesus. If it's not centered in Jesus, it might be because you have common interests, you might have common hobbies, you might work together, you might be in the same craft club, but if it's not centered in Jesus, it's not the fellowship that the early church was devoted to. The fellowship they were devoted to was selfless. It was sacrificial, and it was sincere. Look there in Acts chapter 2 with me. A little farther down, it says in verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Verse 45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now, you don't have to know how to exegete scripture to know just by reading that, that's pretty selfless. 
I mean, come on, that's sacrificial to say that they were so generous towards one another that they could actually look around at the early church and say, nobody here has any real needs. Nobody's going hungry. Nobody's homeless in the church. Everybody's needs are being met. And not only was it sacrificial and, and <clears throat> not only was it selfless, it was sincere. In other words, nobody was being coerced to do it. I mean, you know, it wasn't like you, you get saved and you become a part of the church and all of a sudden, you know, one of the elders comes and puts their arm around and says, brother, you know, if you'd sell that boat, we could do a lot for missions. You know, you know what I mean? You're like, oh, I guess everybody's emptying their pockets. We got <laughs> No, it was sincere. And that's the way it has to be, by the way if it's going to honor the heart of God. In fact, if you move a little farther in the early church to Acts 5, there's a story about a, a man and his wife, Ananias and Sapphira. And all these people in the, in the church were being compelled by the Spirit. Acts 4 says that the grace of God was so powerfully evident amongst them all. And Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted God's grace to be powerful in their life, or at least they wanted it to appear that way. So the Bible says they went and they sold property. <coughs> And they kept some of the profit for themselves, and they brought the rest to the Lord. Now, nothing wrong with that. It was theirs to begin with. The problem was when they brought it to the Lord, they said, we've sold this prof property, and we brought all the money to give it to the Lord. They wanted to look more spiritual than they really were. And the apostle Peter looked at him. He said, you didn't lie to man. What are you doing? You've lied to God. And the Bible says when he told Ananias that, boom, Ananias dropped dead on the floor right there. They came and drug him out, Acts chapter 5. A little while later, his wife Sapphira comes walking in. And Peter asked her, he says, how much did you sell the property for? And she told him the same story her and her husband had corroborated. He said, the feet of the men who drug your husband out are standing at the door. Boom, she dropped dead. How many of you are ready to receive an offering this morning? <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> God did something exceptional, thankfully, and supernatural in that moment to communicate something. It had to be established early on at the very beginning of the, of the church that this demonstration of the grace of God is sincere. It's not fabricated. We're not putting on. We're not trying to look more spiritual than we are. You do that, and the judgment of God will be on you. He said in Matthew, he said, you'll have your reward. If you give so other people can see you, well, I hope they pat you on the back well, because that's all the reward you're getting for your generosity. But that wasn't the church that was devoted to fellowship <clears throat> there was a grace so powerfully at work on their life. There were no needy members in the group. <clears throat> True fellowship has to begin with a partnership with Jesus. It has to honor Jesus first, and then it honors one another. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God has a purpose for our coming together. In fact, I, I want to just give you four reasons that you and I ought to be devoted to fellowship. If you're a note taker, you can write these down. The first one is majesty. Why should you be devoted to fellowship? Majesty. Can I just say that primarily the reason for the church 
to exist today is for the glory of God. We exist for his glory. As you got up this morning and came into God's house, you may have come with needs in your life. You may have come with a real burden. You may have come saying, God, I need you to do something. And that is quite all right. But can I tell you, your motivation every Sunday for serving the Lord or every day for serving the Lord should not be, God, I need you to do something for me. Because how many of you know it's true that if God doesn't do anything else for you, if he doesn't answer any more of your prayers by the fact that he saved you with the shed blood of his own son, your name is written down in the annals of heaven, you have an eternal security in Christ, that ought to be reason enough for you to get up every day and give God praise. Every day to say, God, I'm going to worship you. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to glorify you because of who you are, it's about the majesty of God. The psalmist said it like this, Psalm 8 and 9. He said, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You're worthy of, pra of praise. <clears throat> the Bible says that when we come together in his name, he delights in the praises of his people. It says in another place, he inhabits the praises of his people. In other words, God shows up when we come together to lift him up. And you know the good thing about God showing up is God never shows up empty-handed. I mean, come on. When God shows up, he's got something in his hand. He's got something for you. You'll never outgive our Father God. And so because he delights in our praises and he shows up, there's the potential for something glorious, powerful, and majestic to happen every time. We come together in his name, not just in the sanctuary. <clears throat> it can happen where two or three gather in your home. But one of my favorite verses about what God can do in a service, and, and if you've been here uh, on a regular basis, maybe you've even picked this up. I, I pray this often, out loud, and it comes right out of Psalm 63, verse 2. The psalmist said, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Oftentimes, I find that phrase coming off my lips. I say, God, demonstrate your power and your glory in this service. Why do I pray that? Because the psalmist said God's power and his glory are going to be demonstrated in the sanctuary. So the majesty of God is magnified when we come together. And we say, God, we're here to lift up the name of Jesus. We come to devote ourselves to fellowship with our king. We come to honor him and worship him, not for what he can do or what we want him to do, but because of who he is and because of what he's already done. Jesus said there's something powerful that happens when, when we become devoted to fellowship. In John chapter 17, we have the Lord's prayer, not not what we call the Lord's Prayer, not our Father who art in heaven. We call that the Lord's Prayer. But in John 17, we actually have Jesus praying. And of all the things that he prayed for, <clears throat> he said this to the Father. He said, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, Father, so that... <clears throat> They may be brought to complete unity. Jesus' desire that the church would be in unity the way he and the Father are in unity 
was so that we could come into complete unity. Look at the rest of this statement. He says, then, when that happens, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What is he saying? He's saying the the majesty and the glory of the kingdom will be revealed when the church comes into unity, when we get devoted to fellowship. The psalmist said it like this. He said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. We often quote that. I was glad when he said it to me, Psalm 122.1, let us go to the house of the Lord. But what was he glad about? You read a few verses down and it says, it is there that the tribes come together to give God praise. He was saying, I'm glad about the fact that we are coming together for the majesty of our king. Let me give you the second one this morning. We come devoted to fellowship for the majesty of God, but we also come for ministry. Ministry. I don't mean you come to receive ministry. I mean you come because you're devoted to the activity of ministry. See, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you are a member of it. You're a part of the body of Christ. Can I just say this about the body today? God's body doesn't have any useless parts. His body doesn't have any handicapped or uh, paralyzed parts. There's no inefficient or weak parts in the body of Christ. If, If I can jump analogies here, can I say there's no B team in the kingdom of God. There's no second string Christian. So look around this room. We are the body of Christ and each one of us is a part of it and the body of Christ is a functioning body, which means God has given you something to do. He's called you to some form or fashion of ministry. I love the way the apostle Peter described this reality. First Peter chapter four and verse 10, he said, each of you should use whatever gift you have received. He didn't say if you received a gift, you should use it. He didn't say for the select few of you that have the special touch of God on your life. He didn't see those of you that that were, you know, raised in the church, you cut your teeth on the back of a pew. No, he, he said, each of you that are saved, each of you, the church, should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Let me say it plainly today. You have a gift. You have a gift. At the moment of salvation, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians that that Jesus selected gifts for you. There's something that you're called and purposed to do to build up the church. And this verse in 1 Peter says that when each of us do that, it's a demonstration of the manifold grace of God. It's like the difference of shining a light in a mirror and having it reflect in one direction or shining a light into a kaleidoscope and having vast light shine around the room. Peter's saying that's what it's like when everybody begins to use the gift of God. Listen, right after the service today, this just fits right in with this idea of fellowship. Right after the service today, we're having our Connect in 60 lunch. Some of you have already signed up and you're planning to stay. If you didn't sign up, let me tell you what that is. Every few weeks, we have a Connect in 60 lunch. And right after this service, in fact, I can see they've already started setting tables up. 
we're gonna host a lunch for 60 minutes. If you're new to the church, maybe you've never been to one of these connecting 60 lunches before, and <clears throat> whether it's your first time or you've been here for a couple months, it's an opportunity for us to share a meal with you. Pastor Chris and I are gonna talk about the next steps to get involved in the church. Why? Because we believe that saved people ought to serve people. Hear me today. We, we do not have a goal of building a large audience of spectators. Our heart is to build a church of participants. And so that's why we often say, service is not something that we want from you. Service is something we want for you. Because if you're saved, you ought to serve. God has gifted you, and there is a place for you to exercise that gift in the body of Christ. And when you do, the grace of God is displayed in a greater capacity. And so we ought to devote ourselves to fellowship because the call of God is on each and every one of our lives to minister. I think revival would break out in America if the church would understand Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. If we could just understand this verse, let me read it to you. It says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Th those are gifts, it says, from Jesus. They're gifts to the church, the, what we call the five-fold ministry, these areas of ministry. Why did he give us those gifts? Next verse. <clears throat> to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. You know what that verse says? That's, that verse says the ministry is not for the professionals. That verse says that God has given these offices and these branches of ministry to equip the church so that the church can do the work of the ministry, so the body of Christ can be built up. What I'm saying is that the church is going to thrive. The church is going to be strong when you and I and every one of us who call Jesus Lord recognize that I have to be devoted to not just come and receive but I have to be devoted to serve. God has given me a way to serve. Let me give you the third one. The third one is motivation. A reason that you ought to be devoted to fellowship. You don't have to raise your hand or, or nod at me. I think we would all say yes to this, but I just wonder if you've ever come to church because you did need encouragement. I think every one of us have had a time in our life where we thought, man, this, this has been a hard week. Jesus, just, I hope church is good on Sunday because I need it. I, I mean, I, I need it. We've all been there before. <clears throat> We've had moments where we just needed encouragement. One of the purposes for the church and for us being devoted to the fellowship is the recognition that there are times in my life, there are times in your lives where we need to be motivated. We need to be encouraged the writer of Hebrews talked about it. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, he said this. He said, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart and turns away from the living God. Be encouraged, but encourage one another daily, he says. As long as it is called today. Last time I checked, today is still called today. So what he's saying is encourage one another every day. 
so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Understand what he's saying here. He's saying to brothers and sisters, verse 12 said. In other words, he's saying to Christians, he's saying to followers of Jesus that there is the potential for some of us to turn our hearts towards deceitfulness of sin and to fall away. Now, I don't believe that, that, that there are warnings in the Bible as scare tactics. I think if the Bible said it, then it's true. Now, I know there, there are plenty of people that have this conviction that, that you know, once you're saved, you're always saved, and it's not only eternal, but it's unconditional. In other words, there's nothing you can do to not be saved. But that's not what I read in the text. What I read is a, a caution to the church to say you need to encourage one another. As long as today is still called today, you need to encourage one another so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And that your heart would become unbelieving and that you would turn away. See, one of the reasons that we ought to be committed to the church is for this reality. God has called us to hold each other accountable. Again, no amens on accountable. That's two services in a row. That's amazing. Right? No, nobody likes accountability, right? Can we just be honest about that? Like Nobody's like, oh, yes, I have my quarterly review this week. Like, no, nobody wants to be held accountable. Nobody wants somebody to, like, check on them. We start, like, ah, yeah, you lost me. You know, I was with you on motivation. Accountable, not so much. But like, the reality is, each and every one of us, when we say, I I'm devoted to fellowship, we're saying, I'm committed to the church. I'm committed to the place where God has placed me. That, that life ebbs and flows. There's ups and downs. There's hills and valleys. And, and, and some days I feel like David and I can run through a troop and leap over a wall. But some days my faith fails me. Some days I struggle. Some days I know what Solomon meant when he said a righteous man falls seven times. But he gets back up again. And I need somebody to help me get back up again. And it's in those moments that we ought to be committed enough to the fellowship that a brother or a sister in Christ can come to you and encourage you. Hebrews talks about it again in chapter 10. It says in verse 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on <coughs> toward good deeds. So see, sometimes the encouragement comes in that way of saying, keep going. Let me spur you on. Keep going. You can do it. You know, we get out in front of people and say, come on, man, come on, keep up. And we set the pace. And sometimes... That encouragement comes in the way of accountability, and we say, stop sinning. We get around on the other side of you and, you know, give you a Holy Ghost kick in the pants. What are you doing? You're wrecking your life. Stop doing that. Where have you been? And we do it in love. Why? Because we need motivation. And there's not a single person that was called to follow Christ alone. You know, people often say, if you were the only one, Jesus would have died for you. And that's true. He loves you that much. But Jesus never died for one alone. It was always about the church. It was always about a people. He's coming back for the church. It's about a fellowship, and we ought to be devoted to it. The last word I want to talk about is a movement. <clears throat> you know, when we talk about the church today, we're not talking about this building. The reality is, when the church was established, when Jesus started the church, and when he guaranteed in Matthew 16, 18, I'm going to build my church, and not even the gates of hell will not 
prevail against it. He wasn't talking about fire insurance for a church building. I thank God for this building, but if it all goes up in flames this week, we're going to meet somewhere next weekend. Amen? We're going to meet somewhere because the church is not about brick and mortar. It's not built with concrete. It's built with conviction. And when we see the church, it is a movement. In fact, the word in the original Greek that we get our word church for is ekklesia or the ecclesia. And that word means those that are called out of one thing and around something else. So you, you could have a gathering of people, like you could, you could be in an ecclesia in the military. You get called out of civilian life and you get put into active duty. And so when they were describing the church, they used this word, ecclesia. They're called out ones and they're called into something else. <clears throat> you know, in, in the dark ages and in the middle ages, something started to shift in church history, the church started becoming more about a place you went and an event you experienced. It became an institution, the church. It was an institution. And it, and it wasn't a body anymore. It was a hierarchy. And, and God in the 1500s raised up some reformers to kind of speak against that and to turn the tide of the church. One of those reformers was a man named William Tyndale. Maybe you have his name on your Bible. Mine's published by Zondervan, but some of you have a Bible published by Tyndale. William Tyndale believed that the church was a movement, not an established institution. And he believed if people are going to be a part of the movement, they have to know what the movement is about. And so he dedicated the rest of his life to translating the scriptures into the modern English language so that people could understand what this movement is all about. So that they wouldn't have to get informed at the church, the place, but they could know what this movement was all about. So whenever he started translating the Bible and he got to this word ecclesia, he didn't say the church. He said the congregation. And when he translated Ecclesia as congregation, it infuriated the hierarchy because it undercut their authority. It, it, it robbed them of some of their power. It wasn't about the church up there. It was about the people. And so they arrested him as a heretic. They hung him. They burned him at the stake. But one of the last things William Tyndale said while he was on trial was this. He said, if God spares my life, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. One of the last things that he was heard to say before he died was a prayer. He said, Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. If you have a King James Version Bible, you hold the answer to that prayer. God answered that prayer. William Tyndale gave his life because he believed that Christians should be devoted to the fellowship, that the church is a movement. And if you're gonna be a part of a movement, you gotta know what it's about, that they can devote themselves to the word of God. They can devote themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. <clears throat> As we get ready to end this service this morning, 
I want to just challenge you one more time to devote yourself. And if I can just kind of expand out over this series, I want to go back to where we started and challenge you today to devote yourself to the Word of God. 